Well, good morning again, and welcome to Missio Day. It's so great to be worshiping with you. And I think just as we get going here, one of the things I want to draw our attention to is how beautiful the voices were this morning, singing together as God's people, recognizing that, that when we gather for worship, that's the most important sound that we hear, is each of us together corporately praising God. Because it's not listening to people perform, it's all of us together. We're not spectators, we're participants in worship. So that's why things like the corporate prayer of sin, when we recite that together, or the call to worship, when we read that together, it reminds all of our hearts that we get to do this together. We get to go before Jesus together as a church family. And one thing we get to do this morning as a church family is celebrate a baptism, which is why this water tank is up here. It's not because we have a petting zoo coming in later and we have to feed the livestock. It's because we're going to celebrate a sister in Christ who gave her life to Jesus this week. And so, so what, uh, what we've noticed as we've gone through the book of Acts is that the pattern is the gospel is proclaimed to someone. God opens that person's heart to receive his grace. They profess faith in Jesus. And then every single time we have seen a salvation in the book of Acts that we've been studying for this last year, every single time there is a baptism that follows that. Okay, and so baptism is not something that saves you. It doesn't make Jesus love you any more than before you were baptized. What baptism is, is this, this means of grace, this sacrament that declares to everyone around you what happened in your heart when you came to Jesus. Okay, it's an external proclamation of an internal transformation. And so uh, Rick and Tina Fleck have been a part of our church for a number of years. And this week, their uh, granddaughter Aspen was visiting and through a, a series of events that I'll let her uh, share with her uh, with you all during her testimony. Uh, Jesus saved her. Uh, he made her a new creation in Christ, and so now she is asked to be baptized, and we get to celebrate that this morning. So um, uh, Rick and Aspen, if you want to come on up, it'd be great to have you. So Aspen will be moving to Albuquerque this next week, which is why we are doing it. This is much more of a New Testament pattern, right? Someone uh, professes faith, the baptism happens, and we all get to celebrate. So as soon as she comes up out of the water here in a bit, I hope we get to all proclaim and, and celebrate and go nuts about what God has done in Aspen's heart. So yes, thanks for taking the time to do this, Aspen. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, <laughs> um, so I was given three questions to answer. Um, and the first one was, what, is, what was your life like prior to coming to Christ? Um, for me, it was, it was dark and full of pain, um, especially anger. Uh, I was full of fear, and I couldn't trust anybody, um, and not even God. I had turned, I had turned my back on him, um, and I got angry when things would happen, and I would blame God for things that had happened. Um, so it, it definitely wasn't easy. Um, so the next question was, um, what was the process of becoming a follower of Christ like? Um, it was definitely a long and challenging process. Um, I kept going back and forth between, between being angry with God and wanting him in my life. Um, it, was, it was like that until I went to Grandpa's and Tina's Bible study for um, and I had talked with um, one Billy. of Billy, and he, I had shared my story with him, and he had shared his story with me, and uh, he, he, he told me things that I didn't even think were actually possible, that, um, and he told me that um, he had actually t shared an analogy with me that it's like I'm, hold I'm outside in the rain holding an umbrella, and I can hold it here, and like God is the, the umbrella, and I was holding it out here, allowing myself to get drenched. Um, <laughs> and um, that I had just, um, and he said he didn't know how far I was holding him from me, but I knew that I was holding him back here. And, um, but um, 
because I come from a Christian family, it had gone from being all the way back here to about, about out here. Um, and after that conversation, I held it here. Um, and so I want, I want to get baptized because um, I, want, um, I want to live the life that I was meant to live um, and not walk alone um, and think that I can handle life on my own because <laughs> we all know that that's not possible. Um, and, and I've accepted Christ into my life and I want to share that with everybody. Um, and one last thing, my, I had actually gone um, thrift shopping with my sister yesterday and it was kind of funny. She had opened up a book and this little piece of paper f- fell out um, and it's called The Footprint in the Sand. And she, I didn't, I didn't see it until actually this morning. <laughs> she had handed it to me and said that this would be a good bookmark. Um, so I'll read this. Um, so it says, one night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints on the sand, in the sand. One belonged to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints and noticed many times along the path that there was only one set of footprints in the sand. He also noticed that this happened during the lowest and saddest times of his life. This really bothered him, so he questioned the Lord. Lord, why, you said it, that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way, but I noticed that during the most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, you deserted me. And the Lord replied, My precious child, I love you and would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you needed, when you, ah, sorry, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then I carried you. Thanks, Aspen, for sharing that. That's such a beautiful testimony. Amen. Let's praise God. And so now uh, your grandpa is going to baptize you. So let us celebrate the sacrament. And hopefully it's warm. We tried to make it warm. So. Yes. Yep. So you go ahead and sit down. Uh, Aspen, do you confess and affirm Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I do. Uh, I should have brought my glasses. Then I baptize you, Aspen, my sister, in, the, in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in uh, likeness of his death. Raised to newness of life. Amen.
Amen. Well, praise God for his gift of salvation and new life. And so uh, uh, we're going to uh, move the water tank out of the way. Aspen, it's so great to be here with you. Thank you so much for sharing this wonderful moment with us. And so uh, at your table, please take two minutes to say hi to someone you don't know. Welcome them as Christ has welcomed you and get a refill of some coffee while you're at it. We'll be back in a little bit. At this time, if you would, uh, if you're able, please stand for the scripture reading. <clears throat> so we're standing out of respect for God's word. And our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. So starting in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demand as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were able to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is God's word. It is true and is given out of his love. You may be seated. David's humor there with Nate crashing into the QR code. That's one of the joys of working with David is we get to laugh a lot at stuff like that. So um, if this is uh, your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We are in the middle of uh, this, I think, like week 29 or 30, something like that, of progressing through the book of Acts. So our goal every morning when we gather is to open God's word together, to study, to see what it has for us, because we know that as God's word, the revelation from him, it is true. It is a sign of his love for us, and we get to grow together uh, as people uh, seeking after Jesus when we study his word. So um, one of the things that Kelly pointed out to me, my wife Kelly pointed out recently, is how often I will bring up some, like political concepts or uh, governmental concepts while I'm preaching. And I needed to confess the reason for that is because I'm a recovering political science uh, graduate. I'm trying to get over that kind of problem. So with that in my background, though, that always is kind of the first thing on my mind. And so I'm going to do it again this morning because Kelly is back in kids and she can't stop me this morning. So, uh, But I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. But what, um, So what, uh, one of my favorite stories from the, the founding of uh, America in the writing of the Constitution was after the Constitutional Convention was held, there's this story that goes that Benjamin Franklin was leaving the Constitutional Hall and one of his friends asked him, uh, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us, a king or a republic? And his answer is really famous. It's these words, a republic if you can keep it. His warning was a republic if you can keep it. He's saying that the, the essence of what American government looks like is, is something that needs to be stewarded by each successive generation. And the reason I love that quote is because it, it shows us that just because something is good doesn't mean that it will endure. Okay, just something that starts off good, those things can change and they can fall off a lot of times. And so, so uh, if you are reading through the book of Acts, let's say you got all the way to the end of Acts chapter 8, and somehow you were able to meet with the apostles back in the first century, you could have asked them that exact same question. You could have said to the apostles, what have you given us? And I think their answer could have been a church if you can keep it. Okay, a church, if you can keep it. Uh, the reason I think that's so important is because when you read through the rest of the New Testament, when you see all the other letters that were written by the apostles, you see that very often 
they, ent- they entail all these warnings about uh, what would happen if you stray from the gospel doctrine. What happens if you allow false teaching to come into the church? What happens if you, you instead of believing that God loves you because of what Jesus did for you, what happens if you begin to think you have to earn God's love? All of those things are these warnings in the word of God that says we have been given, we have been blessed with a church if we can keep it. I think if you look throughout church history, you see the sad reality that very often churches that are founded on solid gospel principles of good, the good news of Jesus' love for us, they drift into heresy and they become false churches. Uh, things in history like the Protestant Reformation, that comes about because the church strays from this good news of salvation by grace through faith and needs to be brought back online in order to be kept. Uh, even in American history, you look at a lot of our, our great institutions like Harvard or Yale, and you know that their history was founded uh, by men and women of God who wanted to equip men and women to proclaim the gospel. But then, you know, hundreds of years later, they have drifted from that original vision and they do other things. Uh, many denominations in our country uh, that were founded by godly men and women to proclaim the gospel have drifted from that very gospel and are now no longer true churches in the sense of what the Bible means by a true church. And so this question is before us, we have been given a church if we can keep it. So the question is, what does it mean to keep the church as the body of Christ? And before we get going, one thing I want to really clarify, make sure none of us leave misunderstanding. Jesus is the one who builds his church. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all creation. And ultimately, the church will be kept, not through you and my efforts. The church will be kept because of the sovereign care and love of Jesus and him alone. Okay, but the other reality is there are many churches who have not been kept. Individual churches that have strayed into false teaching or false uh, culture that is not aligned with the gospel. So the question for us this morning is what can we do to be an outpost of gospel ministry? How can we make sure that our church stays in line with the tenets of the faith and that we never drift from that calling that God has placed on us? How do we not become a, a counterfeit church or a false church? And so the answer, the question we're asking is, if this is a church that God has given us, how can we keep it in line with the grace that he has shown us? And so we're going to do that through looking at three different steps this morning. We're going to look at the foundations of gospel ministry. Then we're going to talk about the fruit of gospel ministry. And then we're going to end with the furthering of gospel ministry. And that, that symmetry and that alliteration just makes my heart so glad as a preacher to know that I was able to make all of that rhyme and make sense. So we'll pray and then get started in studying God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning and the fact that, uh, that you have promised to keep us in your grace. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful stewards of this uh, task that you have given us, this ministry of the gospel. I pray that as we open these words, that they would not be uh, mere words on a page, but rather they would be uh, evidences of your grace. It'd be a reminder of the things that you have blessed us with, and it would encourage us to follow hard after you. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we've been studying the book of Acts for quite a while, and so the context of where we're at, I think we have a map that we can show about where we are in Acts. And so last week, this is a, a map of Paul's second missionary journey. So this is happening. Paul's going all over the Roman Empire. Last week, he was in Philippi, uh, planting the church that he later wrote the letter to the Philippians. This morning, he's in, first, or he's in Thessalonica, which is why we read that letter from First Thessalonians. Uh, Chris read that a little bit ago. But one of the things I wanted to point out here is that journey, that path that Paul is following, it goes along this uh, Roman road called the Ignatian Way. And we actually have a picture of that as well that I neglected to show last week. But what that is, is that is the actual path from Philippi to the sea that Paul would have walked upon in order to preach the gospel that we're going to read about this morning. 
And so I want to do several things here. One is remind us that uh, this is rooted in history. This is a real story. Paul was a real guy who preached the gospel to real people who responded in faith and are now really our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, awaiting glory uh, along with Jesus in heaven right now. And so so historical reminders like this are important to remember. This is nothing that we invented. Christianity didn't come on the scene because of something that happened in the last few hundred years. This is rooted in the history of God's salvation uh, throughout uh, all all of his saving work throughout history. The other reason I wanted to point out this road is because this highway was totally transformative in the history of the world. The fact that the Romans were able to unite their entire empire through roads like this was why they could have such control over the largest empire at that point in the history of the world. But as God always does, God uses the technological advances in front of people in order to further his kingdom, in order to bring more people to save him. So God has used trade routes that have existed throughout history to plant new churches in far off countries. Uh, God has used things like the printing press in order to have the Bible be disseminated to anyone who can read. Think marvelous uh, technologies like that. Even things like the internet, God uses to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth, except for Facebook. Facebook is still the Antichrist. No one has ever been built up from Facebook. But in general, <laughs> technology is something God uses to advance his kingdom. So we have to look around us and say, what is the opportunities? What are the highways that exist in our world that we can make highways of the gospel? Just like Paul really walked on that highway, what are the things in front of us that we can take to see the gospel advance? So let's see how he does that here in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And if you have a, a table Bible, on the table Bible is page 926. Let's get started. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So here we see Paul's pattern unfolds again. It's a new city, a new synagogue, but it's the exact same gospel message that he preaches everywhere he goes. And so we're going to see three foundations of gospel ministry here in these first few verses. The first one is the foundation of the assembly. There's a very important reason why every time Paul showed up in a new town, the first thing he did was look for a synagogue. Okay, so a synagogue is a gathering of Jewish people studying the Old Testament, awaiting the Messiah. It, it, it's a group of people who have been exposed to the truth of who Yahweh is, the God, uh, as God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, and they are seeking a closer relationship with him. And so Paul uses that, that foundation of the people pursuing after God, that is the assembly that he goes to in order to plant these new churches, in order to share the gospel. And so the reason these synagogues existed all around the Roman Empire was after God had disciplined the Israelite people in the Old Testament and and they sent them off into the dispersion, it was called. And so there was Jewish outposts in every corner of the Roman Empire. And so Paul used those different gatherings, those synagogues, as a way to gather people together and say, you are seeking after God, that's why you're here. What you are seeking can only be found in Jesus Christ. That was his method every time. And so for us, the question is, for our gospel foundation of ministry, is the assembly, the gathering of believers, is still an essential aspect of what it means to keep the church. Okay, every Sunday morning, when we gather, we are saying we are a people who is longing for a deeper relationship with God. We are seeking to understand the truth of who he is and reject the lies of the world around us that say we have to earn God's favor and those kinds of things. The assembly is still so important. And that's why the culture of our church is so significant. Okay, we, we've been talking a lot in the last few months about this 
idea of these 85 minutes we gather on a Sunday morning have the potential to be the most significant 85 minutes of our week because when we gather, we remind everyone of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And things like greeting time, how we love each other at our tables, the way we respond in song, all of those things are important because it edifies us, but it reminds us as well that there are people out there who are seeking after something of significance. Every morning when we gather here, there are people here who don't yet know Jesus that are looking. And if you're here this morning looking for something bigger than yourself, what we need to do as a church is say that thing you are seeking after is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why this foundation is so important. The other thing I want to point out again is we want to draw our attention to how often in the book of Acts, Luke, the author, draws our attention to women's role in the founding of the church. Okay, like every week this has come up, I've tried to point this out, and we've seen it so many times. Like in in chapter one, women were with them in the upper room uh, when they picked a new disciple. In chapter two, uh, we see this prophecy of women being filled with the Spirit and prophesying. In chapter five, we see that there's multitudes baptized, including women. Uh, In chapter eight, it says that Saul persecuted both men and women who belonged to the church. In chapter eight, we see that the, the Samaritan revival of Samaritans coming to faith was both Samaritan men and women. And then last week, when I mentioned this also, in chapter 16, we saw that the very first converts, the very first Christians in the whole continent of Europe were women. Okay, and so like obviously if Paul is drawing our attention to this, or Luke is, it's something super important because in the ancient world, authors didn't care to waste time about what was happening with the women in the story. They were so uh, male-dominated, they never even thought to spill ink over that. And so what is happening here? Um, I talked with Kelly about this this week because her thoughts on things related to women are always more important than mine, right? All you ladies can say amen to that. The thing that she said stood out to her as you focus on all of these things is that the idea of me standing up here and saying, hey, women have a valuable role in the church, um, that is white noise this day and age. Because everywhere you go as a woman, you hear the message that you are valuable, that you are dignified, and that you have uh, responsibility and a mission to, to uh, in the world. Okay? The thing that I want to draw our attention to is that, that that message has been treated as if it is this feminist movement that needs to save women from Jesus. When, when you look here at the Acts and the message of the New Testament, what we see is Jesus has always saved women from their sin, and then he has given them a role and an obligation in helping other women and men come to know Jesus and be saved as well. Okay, so, so rather than this becoming white noise that's washed out with all the rest of the feminist messages in our culture, what we need to see is the very roots of feminism, the very idea that women have dignity and value is not found in something that started in the 1970s. It's found in something that started when Jesus walked the earth and he called women to himself to save them. He, 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 the first person Jesus told that he was the Messiah was the Samaritan woman by the well. Okay, that is our tradition and our history as Christians. And so we want, don't want to say that like we're trying to keep up up with what culture is doing, saying that women have value. We want to say Jesus was there first, and you're trying to catch up to the fact that Jesus has always said that men and women together fully reflect the image of God. Okay, we're distinct in role and function, but equal in dignity and value. That's such an important part. Okay, so that's the first foundation of gospel-centered ministry, is that they assembly, the gathering together. And uh, the second foundation we see is the foundation of Scripture. Okay, so when Peter, or when Paul showed up in the synagogue, what did he do? He opened the scriptures, he opened the Old Testament to them, and he did four things. Okay, it says that he uh, reasoned with them, he explained to them, he proved to them, and then he proclaimed Jesus to them. Those four things were all grounded in the Bible that he had open in front of him. So what it means to, to reason with someone, it's this idea of dialoguing. It's a Q&A, it's a processing concepts together. It's what we do every single week here at our discussion tables. That's why I think these tables are so important 
important for who God is calling us to be because Paul was reasoning, he was dialoguing with people and that's what we get the chance to do when we open our Bibles and discuss together what God is doing in our midst. The other thing we see that Paul did is he explained to them. Okay, to explain means to open something, to make it easier to understand, to make it easier to comprehend. I, I was talking with the youth about what was so significant about their uh, experience at youth camp this last week and what Reagan told me was that the, unlike my sermons, the pastor down there did a great job of making it simple and clear. And I was like, thank God for humility because uh, ultimately we care about it, the gospel being clear and God uses uh, your daughter a lot of times to keep you humble on those things like that. Okay, but the idea of like, if the gospel isn't clear, it cannot be responded to. If we aren't clear on what the scriptures say, there's no way someone can step in faith and trust Jesus as their savior from that. The ne- next thing we see is that he proved to them. Okay, to prove something means to give evidence for. I mean, it means to, to show with your intellect and your reasoning abilities that what we are talking about is true. Okay, it's that First Peter 3 concept of always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. A lot of times in Christian circles, there's this idea that if you have any doubts or questions, you need to keep them quiet because people will get uncomfortable with your questions. Okay, and, and what we know for a fact as you study the word, as you look at the glories of God's creation, is every question or objection or doubt you have, there is an answer for. Okay, we as Christians have nothing to fear with intellectual discussion or debate because ultimately all truth points, each other, points us to God and the truth of his salvation. So if you have doubts and questions, there is space to be, to be proved from the gospel, from the Bible, what, who God is and what he is doing. The last thing we see is that he proclaimed Jesus. Okay, now to proclaim means to advocate for someone. Okay, and I love what's happening here. As Paul is saying, I'm not just telling you about Jesus. I am advocating that you respond to Jesus in faith. I think a lot of times we as Christians think that everyone's heard of Jesus, so I'm just gonna kind of live my Christian life and hope that people will find, up, uh, find Jesus on their own. They'll end up in a place of faith on their own. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, I am pleading with you. I am telling you, I'm laying on the line, what happens if you reject Jesus? What happens if you accept Jesus and trust him with your faith? All of those things, we need to, at the end of the day, make people understand that there is a decision. That there's no such thing as a passive entrance into Christianity. It requires faith and trusting in what God has done for you. Uh, when, we, uh, when I met Kelly in college, there was this thing about, weird little thing about our, our Christian college subculture where you wouldn't, like, you wouldn't say you were dating. You would just like go on dates for a while. And then you would have this big moment where you had what everyone called an RDT. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's a relationship-defining talk. And it's where you finally have this, this heart-to-heart where you're like, okay, are we a thing or not? Or what's happening here? We need to have an RDT. That's how everyone uh, did it there. And I think what's happening with a lot of us in our evangelism and loving people who don't know Jesus is we never get to the RDT, okay? We need to get to the point where we tell people, you need to trust Jesus with your heart. You need to believe that he has given everything to you in grace. You need to step into faith. That's what we got to celebrate this morning with baptism is that, that, that when we respond in faith, Jesus is faithful to save. He is the one that puts that faith in our hearts and, encourage, and draws us to himself, okay? So for what we see from this, this foundation of scripture, uh, this is why this idea of what we do with the Bible is so important. Okay, how do we keep the church? The most important tool that we have to keep the church is the fact that God has given us his word. Okay, if we submit to the authority of scriptures, if we say that it doesn't matter what I think or you think, it matters what God's word says, that is the thing that will keep us tethered to the truth of the gospel. And if you look at those different movements or churches or organizations that have drifted from truth of the gospel, it always begins by removing this pillar of scripture, by removing this idea that opening the words here are not just words, they're the very word of God for you and for me. And so, so with that, we see that these foundations, um, how do you keep the church? There's the foundation of the assembly, and 
and is the foundation of Scripture. Those two things need to work together in order to make sure that the church is kept for God's glory. Let's keep going in uh, chapter and uh, verse five. If we have that gospel foundation, what will be the fruit? What is the result of that kind of foundation? Let's look at verse five here. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, uh, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so, so it's weird to say that the fruit of gospel ministry is a mob and a riot. But that's exactly what happens. Let's see what, so what happened is the, the Jewish leaders of the synagogue became jealous. That these people were leaving their synagogue and joining Paul and Silas. So they went to this, this group of people that he refers to as the wicked men of the rabble. And if you're here and you're looking for a name for a death metal band, I think that's a pretty good death metal band name, right? Wicked men of the rebel. But what we know from his history is that all of these cities had these people that philosophers called wicked men of the rabble. They were, they were the unemployed vagrants who were always looking to cause trouble. And they, they, like in lots of different cities throughout the Roman Empire, they, they caused trouble. So what happened is these Jewish leaders, because they're jealous, they go to these people and they start a riot, hoping that they will bring Paul and Silas out and get them killed. They can't find Paul and Silas. So instead they go to the Jason, the guy who came to faith in Jesus, was hosting Paul and Silas. They took him to court. The authorities said because they're proclaiming another king, king besides Caesar, they took money as security from Jason, which means we're holding Jason responsible to kick Paul and Silas out of the city. It was a very effective way of barring Paul and Silas from doing ministry in this city of Thessalonica. But but here's the things I want to draw our attention to. The reason this happened, the reason they got the mob in an uproar, the reason the authorities went with this is because there was this idea going around that Paul and Silas are the men who have turned the world upside down. And that is such a beautiful picture of what happens anytime the gospel goes into a new territory. The normal order of things is completely upended and turned on its head and nothing in the world is the same as it was before. The world has been turned upside down. I think what we forget is that Jesus is the biggest radical who has ever lived in history. Jesus is the most revolutionary figure in the history of the world. Jesus makes Karl Marx look like he's leading the PTA compared to what Jesus did. Every single thing that we take as a norm in our society today, if you just look at the values that we have as Americans, all of those things, most of those things are rooted in Christian values that Jesus started. Again, like we already talked about, the idea that women have equal dignity and value as men. That, that is not a concept that comes apart, that comes apart from Christ. The the idea that slavery is bad and that people have dignity and value, that is not a concept that comes apart from Jesus. The the idea that, that children and sick people should be cared for in the ancient world, that was absurd. But then these groups of Christians come along following the teachings of Jesus and they turn the world upside down by caring for the least of these, exactly like Jesus said. The the idea that that the world is not built on wealth and power, but on humility and sacrifice. All of these ideas will stir the affections of everyone in our society, but all of these ideas are rooted in the person and the teachings of Jesus. That's what it means to turn the world upside down with this gospel. So then the question that that is, is challenging and horrifying for me personally is why when I share the gospel with my neighbors, is it met with a yawn instead of a revolution? What about my gospel presentation seems so unrevolutionary and boring to them? If you can say meh 
to the gospel, do you really understand what we're talking about? And I think, that, I think the answer needs to start personally. This is not about them and how, what their problem is. The question to ask is our own hearts and say, have I domesticated Jesus so much that my life looks exactly like the lives of my neighbors? Okay, think about your non-Christian friends on your street. Think about the non-Christian parents on your kids' sports teams. Think about the non-Christians in your workplace or, the, or in the military that have the same rank as you. Think about all these people that are your peers and ask yourself, does your life look upside down compared to theirs? Or have we so accommodated to our cultural values that there is no distinction between us and them? Okay, and if that is the case, there's no way that they would look at us and start a riot saying they have turned the world upside down with this crazy Jesus guy who's upending everything. Okay, that's, the, that's the call that we have from it, and it starts with us. If Jesus hasn't turned our own life upside down, there's no way that we can turn other people's upside down with the gospel. The next thing we see, that, okay, this is the fruit of gospel ministry. The first fruit is that it turns the world upside down. The second fruit that we see is that it, it creates a distinction or a separation between true and false churches. Okay, this is a little bit more challenging to see in the text, but what, what's happening here is look at who started the riot. Who are the instigators from that, behind this? It's not the wicked men of the rabble. It's the religious leaders. It's the people in charge of the synagogue who became jealous over the fact that they were losing influence and people at their gatherings, and instead they were going over to Paul and Silas. Okay, so what we have is the synagogue, like we said, the, the assembly of people seeking after God, and there's people in charge of that, only their hearts are not bent towards serving God and understanding the son that he sent to save them from their sins. Their hearts are filled with jealousy and wanting to create a platform for themselves so that they can have influence over those around them. And because of that, they were leading this false church, okay? Like they wouldn't have used the word church, but it was a false assembly. It was not an assembly about worshiping God. It was an assembly about puffing these leaders up. And here's the thing about for all of us. Like we've said the last few weeks, you have been given a ministry. Each of us has a ministry God has given us. And if you have a ministry, we have the potential to fall into the same kind of jealousy, to be worried about the the church that's growing down the street and why is ours not growing as fast? Or to be worried about the fact that that your kids come back from youth camp uh, more impressed with the the speakers there than instead of the sermons that I give, those kinds of things. Or what about just not a, a sermon, but just a discipleship moment? Like, like if you're discipling someone, you keep telling these themes over and over again, and then they hear from someone else and it really clicks. Do, do you get jealous over that? Or do you celebrate the fact that God has drawn them to himself? Okay, you've been inviting your coworker to church for weeks and months, and then he goes to a different church instead. I mean, are you excited that he's going to hear the gospel? Or are you jealous that he didn't come with you instead? Those kinds of jealousies are present in all of us if we're not careful. We need to realize that, that, that what God uses in this moment is saying there will be a distinction. There will be a moment where you see these gatherings, these assemblies are about proclaiming the glory of Jesus and making him known and helping other people see who Jesus is. These assemblies are about the world's values and things other than the gospel. Okay, that distinction will inevitably come and it has come throughout all of history. And so our task is to make sure, first of all, that we are kept, that, that we are a true gathering that proclaims the true gospel because we submit to the true scriptures of Jesus. But it's also to equip each other so that when we are called on, like in a transient community like ours, very many of us here will end up moving to a new city or a new state in the next few years. That's just what we've seen ever since we first got started. So our task then is to say, are we equipped when we go to a new city to understand what a true church looks like? Are, are we picking a place that is a true assembly that is gathering people for the glory of Jesus and submits to the word of God? And I think that's why those six priorities that we have on that sign back there on the ramp are so important. 
because that is a picture of what a mature Christian, a mature follower of Christ should look like. That's what we should be working towards with that, is recognizing that, that there is this, this idea of eventually, just, just because a building has a cross on the front or Jesus in the name does not mean that they are an outpost of gospel ministry. Okay, that's a warning for us, and it's an admonishment to make sure we're proclaiming the gospel to those people who, who think they are, are in because they do a club on Sunday mornings rather than a true church. Uh, let's keep going in verse uh, 10. This is what we see. We've seen the, the foundation of gospel ministry, the fruit of gospel ministry. This is the furthering of gospel ministry. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's a, a neighboring city. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And you want to scratch your head right here and be like, Okay, I've heard that definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Here's Paul's insanity, right? He goes to a new city and he goes to the exact same place, the synagogue, full of the same types of people who get him beat up and ran out of town every single time. Okay, but but what looks like insanity to the world in Jesus' upside-down kingdom is actually faithful gospel ministry. Let's keep going. Now, these Jews, as opposed to the ones in Thessalonica, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews came from Thessalonica, or when, they, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So this section leaves with he's in a new city. He's going to do the same thing again. We know he's going to look for a synagogue. and He's going to preach the same gospel. But again, the question, how does the gospel ministry get furthered? What is the furthering of gospel ministry? And, and there's two things we see here. One is that personal study of the scriptures is essential for any true church to be kept. Remember we said, like, how do we keep the church? Our own individual study of the scriptures. Notice what made these Bereans more noble than the Thessalonians. It's their response to the Bible. When Paul was preaching the same message he did in Thessalonica to the Bereans, it says they received it with eagerness because they were daily examining the scriptures. And those three, those three marks, those three tools are so important. Eagerness when we approach the Bible. Recognizing this is, the, this is not just words on a page. This is the words of Jesus. The true path to life is found in here. We should respond with eagerness. I remember we had a woman who came to faith in Jesus. She was baptized here a few years ago. Uh, she, she's moved to another state since then. But she was in a women's group. And all the women in her group were complaining about, oh my gosh, I just can't open the Bible. I have just so much to do. It's, I, it always just ends up getting lost on my to-do list. And, and she, as a new Christian, was completely shocked. She's like, what are you talking about? God wrote us a letter and we can read it every day and hear how much he loves us. How can we not get into the scriptures? That's the kind of eagerness, not, not to like put guilt and shame because we all do end up struggling to get into the word, but that's the kind of eagerness of a new believer that we should all follow, the same as the Bereans did here. We also see that the Bereans did this daily. Okay, they, they were systematic. They didn't say, I got a little Jesus on Sunday. That will carry me throughout the rest of the week. Daily, they were examining the scriptures to see whether what Paul said was true. It's like, it's like, it's like your meals, right? Like, do you remember what you had for breakfast a week ago Thursday? Like, no one does, right? But if you skip meals, you cannot be healthy. If you skip your daily time in the word, you cannot be healthy. And lastly, it says they were examining. Okay, they were, again, they were using their intellect. They were studying these concepts to make sure that what Paul said was accurate. And so for us, the question is, how can we further gospel ministry 
Personally, we can be a part of that ministry being furthered by making sure that we as individuals are saturated in Scripture, that, that we are studying the Scriptures daily. That's why on your table, there should be this stack of handouts. There's, there's some on each of the table in a pile somewhere. But what it is is just two little different approaches to studying the Scriptures. Okay, it's, it's called the SOAP method, and there's another one, a five Ps of Bible study. And the reason that this is so important for all of us is because if you haven't been equipped to study the Bible, you're not going to do it. It's going to become something of drudgery instead of delight. And so if you have any questions about how to study your Bible. Uh, Those at your table would love to help. I would love to help. Your DC leader would love to help. But it's so important. If we're going to see the ministry further, the gospel advance, we all need to be like the Bereans and be people of the book who study the scriptures. Boy, is it hot in here to anyone else? I'm sweating way more than normal. I'm normally a sweaty guy, but um, we're almost done. Yeah, hot and all those things. So the last part, a tool we can further gospel ministry is the tool of furthering the ministry through suffering. You notice, again, Paul has ran out of town. Again, Paul is threatened. Again, Paul is on the run for his life. And, and again, we see Paul as a picture of a disciple of Jesus who was faithful amidst his suffering. And if you've been here throughout the study of the book of Acts, this theme of suffering seems to be a broken record. It feels like every single week I'm up here, we're talking about how do you suffer well as a Christian? And the reason that's so important is because I have never met anyone who has walked away from the faith because they had too good of a theology of suffering. We all know plenty of people who have walked away from Jesus because they haven't known how to process difficulty and suffering in their lives. What we see with Paul is this reminder that God always uses our suffering to further his kingdom. God always uses our pain to proclaim his glory. God redeems those broken parts of our stories and uses them to draw other people to himself. And here's how we see that here. Okay, Paul planted this church in Thessalonica. Things were going well. People were coming to faith in Jesus. He loved these people. But then some religious leaders out of jealousy drove him out of town. And he was never able to see these people in person again, even though he loved them so much. He was willing to share his life with them, like like that passage Chris read a little bit ago. Okay, but through that pain and suffering of Paul being exiled from that city, he decided a few weeks later to write two letters to this church called First and Second Thessalonians, or we know as First and Second Thessalonians. And those two letters contain some of the most important and beautiful, encouraging words in the entire New Testament. Okay, the ideas of sharing your life with someone because you love them comes from First Thessalonians. Or the idea of uh, when you mourn, as Christians, we don't, don't mourn without hope. That's from First Thessalonians. Or the idea that Jesus is coming back, there will be a trumpet that sounds at the end of time, we'll all rejoice in God's kingdom, will be fully realized here on heaven. That kind of, of teaching that has encouraged the church for 2,000 years came as the fruit of Paul's personal suffering from being exiled from that city. God always redeems our pain for his glory, and that's what we see, how the church is kept. Okay, but like I said, when we end this morning, I don't want to end with this message of, okay, the church needs to be kept. How do we keep the church? Grab harder, do these things. Ultimately, we're right back where we started. The reason the church is kept is not because of anything we do. It's because of what the grace of Jesus is doing in us and through us. Okay, so the foundation of the church is the scriptures, Okay, but the, the, the scriptures, the written word, point us to Jesus, who's the living word. Okay? The foundation of the church is not us and our study of the Bible. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. Okay? The fruit of gospel ministry doesn't come because we try harder. It comes because we rest in Jesus. Jesus says, if you abide in my love, uh, that, that, that anything worth doing will be done because the Father is working through us. And then also the idea of furthering the ministry, it doesn't come because we're so great. It comes because God is so faithful. And that's what we see in the very end of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are faithful and that ultimately this this desire to make sure our church is kept in your gospel, uh, that that desire comes from you and that desire is fulfilled through you. Lord, it's not the strength of our grip, it's the amount that we rest in your grip. So I pray that as we go to our discussion tables that you would bring encouragement to each of us at our tables, that everything that we discuss would bring glory to you. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, if this is your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping. And the reason we sit at tables is so that we can, uh, after uh, uh, studying the passage, we can do that dialogue that we talked about. We can discuss what it is that God has shown us from his his word. So the question is to get us started. Uh, The first one is, where might Jesus be leading your personal world to turn upside down? Okay, where have you not submitted to Jesus and how can you take tangible steps to see those values in your own life turned upside down? Secondly, how could the gospel turn Falcon upside down? Okay, what tangible steps can our church take? What are the things that need to be challenged? And uh, where, does, where does darkness need to be pushed back with the light of the gospel? And then lastly, what are your scripture study habits? Is it a daily practice? Uh, and what tools have you found to be helpful? This is just a group discussion. Let's brainstorm some ways that we can encourage one another in the study of the word. And we'll do this for uh, about five minutes this morning, and then we'll come together for worship and communion. All right, guys, if, I'm sorry to cut our discussion short this morning. Uh, but if it's as hot in those hallways with the kids as it is in here, I imagine we have a lot of uh, um, teachers that would like to be let out of their kids' classrooms uh, ASAP kind of thing. So, uh, right. Well, yeah, I hope your discussions went well. Uh, since I am cutting us off and I'm interrupting anything, if you had a, a good discussion going, like there's no teardown today in the summer. We don't have to worry about picking up. So, so stay at your table for a little bit and, and continue to process those thoughts with the people God has around you. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to clarify, like, you know, sometimes I get these moments of like, I'm not sure that was exactly clear. And I want to bring our attention back to when we talk about a church being kept by Jesus, and when we talk about the fact that not every church is kept, that can a lot of times create this us versus them mentality of we're the winners, we're the true church, and over there are the losers, the heretics, and all that. Um, But that amount of pride and self-righteousness is not the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through us. Ultimately, what, what this idea should produce in us is this humility that says, but by the grace of God, there go we. Okay, we, none of us are here because we had a head start on anyone else. It's only the grace of Jesus that draws us. And even I love the, the beauty of the baptism testimony this morning. It's, it's not a reminder that there's some people that need saved and others who don't. It's we all need saved. Okay, we, we all are in need of God's grace. And that's why we do communion every week. Is it's a reminder that if it's only by the blood of Jesus that your sins are cleansed. It's only by the broken body of Jesus that you can be healed. All of those things point us to the fact that there is nothing good in us apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only one that our hope rests in. And so, so Paul, uh, that same Paul we were reading about this morning, he writes this letter to the church in Rome and says this in verse, chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then a little bit later he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, all of us are sinners in need of resurrection. And that beautiful baptism testimony of, of being buried to our old nature, to our sin, and being resurrected to walk in newness of life, that's the thing that gives us the humility to say, it's not us versus them. It's God working in us so that we can love everyone that God puts in our path and point everyone to the same grace that God showed us when he drew us to himself. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing two songs as we wrap up this morning. So if you're able, would you just join me in standing? 
And then uh, during these next two songs, uh, come to the table. Uh, and as you come to the table, be reminded that these are means of grace. Okay? Th- these are reminders that it's the grace of Jesus that has made us whole. And every week we need that reminder in our hearts. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for uh, these, uh, these sacraments, these pictures of your grace that we see through baptism and through communion. And just what a special morning that we get to celebrate both of those together as a body of Christ. And so I pray that as we come to the table, as we, as we confess our sin, as we receive a reminder of your forgiveness for us, that you paid the penalty on the cross, I pray that you would nourish our hearts, that we would be built up in the faith and leave here more in love with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.